Hello, everyone, and we hope that you're enjoying Taken by the Sea. This is John Rosetta, the author, and we have a special episode for you tonight. We're going to be uh, sitting down with Peter Hoffenberg, Professor Peter Hoffenberg of the uh, University of Hawaii and uh, also University of Haifa, and he's going to be tell- telling us all about the uh, cultural and uh, historical significance of the 1830s in Britain, where our story takes place and uh, where William Harris exists and uh, thrives in his uh, merchant role at this time. So it's a really great conversation. Uh, We've cut it into a few different episodes, but this episode specifically deals with the kind of big political and sociocultural issues of the time. I had a great time uh, talking to Professor Hoffenberg, and I hope uh, you have a great time listening. Well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, tonight, we have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with Professor Hoffenberg, and uh, he is going to uh, transport us back to the 1830s. It's quite the task. Um, Professor Hoffenberg is uh, incredible. He's had an incredible list of publications. I'm just looking over here. Uh, it's uh, it's so amazing that he has taken the time to talk to us. He is a professor of history at the uh, University of Hawaii at Manoa, as well as uh, the University of Haifa in Israel. He uh, is also a graduate of Harvard University and uh, has his PhD from uh, California Berkeley. So just just a little bit impressive. Uh, very. <laughs> I think Thank we you. all it's wish very, we had very that. Very kind of you. Everybody <laughs> makes uh, everybody makes mistakes. So every institution <laughs> makes mistakes. Yeah. Uh, apparently, Harvard and Berkeley well, didn't, didn't make a mistake well, I, with you. I got very lucky. I would I would never get in these days. It's way too hard. But thank <laughs> you. That's thank a you. that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but. Uh, so, Professor, again, thank you for joining us. Um, we are um, we are at a part in the story where um, William Harris is um, in the uh, mid eighteen thirties and uh, is a person who is kind of rising up the ranks of uh, the merchant class in uh, in Great Britain. And um, yeah, I'd love to just start off with uh, if you can kind of give us a uh, an overview of what was going on in. Uh, in Great Britain uh, at that time in the 1830s. We'd just love to hear your general thoughts and then we can kind of dive in a little bit. Some some general thoughts and then, yeah, more specifically. So usually for historians, uh, that's considered the early Victorian era. Uh, Actually, Victoria doesn't become monarch until 1837, but a lot of things that are occurring, people often call Victorian because they're values. And probably in the 1830s, the single most important political issue is reform. And reform in Britain has slightly different means than here. Here we often think about a constitution. There's no constitution in Britain. Uh, It's called an organic constitution. Reform means legal change through parliament. And I don't mean to bore your listeners, but the great changes politically occur through parliament and and the goal, though, I think we need to appreciate the goal is that those would lead to social and economic changes as well. So it's, it's very different than the American example. So in the 1830s, uh, we've already what, what year in the 1830s would you like me to start? Because there are major reforms every year. So it really depends on what year you'd like to start. Sure. Uh, our story starts um, just around 1830 itself and goes through okay. about 1836 in Britain. Excellent. Okay, yeah. so. Just before 1830, there is, uh, for us social and cultural historians, 
uh, arguably one of the greatest reforms, which is Catholic emancipation. Mm. And again, you have to think a little differently than the U.S. <laughs> right, right. Between six between 1673 and 1829, uh, 1673. All right, no Catholic could hold public office in Great Britain unless they had dispensation and a privilege. Hmm. So we were talking about a religiously apartheid society. Uh, in 1829. Uh, Catholic emancipation means that people can practice Catholicism in public and hold public office without any kind of dispensation. Now, maybe for Americans, that sounds a little odd, but please uh, remember that we've had lots of religious exclusion and religious discrimination in this country, even though often the legal one has been racial. This was legal religious discrimination. And that really starts all rolling. And as we turn into the early 1830s, we have arguably three major reforms. They come right after each other. And certainly your character uh, would have benefited considerably from the first one, which is known as the Great Reform Bill of 1832. And again, a lot of Americans will find this odd, but up to 1832, um, the voting and the filling of parliament was via the countryside and via the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. So suddenly your merchant character can vote for parliament after 1832 and could potentially sit in parliament. Now, again, I guess the, the parallel here would be to think about, for example, the amendments after the civil war, which allow African-Americans to vote and hold right. office. Right. Okay. Uh, so you have cities involved now. You have merchants and middle class. You do not have workers, either in the cities or the countryside, and you still don't have women. But it's called the mm. Great Reform Bill because it's probably the most significant reform of parliament, uh, probably since Cromwell shut it down in the 17th century. Wow. That then leads to a series of very significant reforms, which I think most historians argue, um, if not immediately a direct consequence, certainly the great reform allowed these to happen. And these, I think your, your viewers will appreciate. Right. One is the abolition of slavery, not just the abolition of the slave trade. That happened in 1807, but literally the abolishment of slavery in the British Empire. Now, remember, it, it takes 700,000 lives and an American Civil War for that to happen in yeah. the U.S. Now, did everybody follow it? No. Uh, did people have to be compensated? Yes, a tremendous amount of money to compensate. And certainly there were Reconstruction era problems. But 1833, finally, the institution itself is abolished. And I think we could all agree that's pretty significant. And then what proceeds over the next few years is a continually dismantling the old order. So a lot of laws that probably your merchant actually benefited from, like combination and conspiracy acts, which prevented labor, laborites, trade unionists, radicals from meeting. Uh, and your merchant by the 1830s would have been probably anti-labor, certainly anti-revolutionary, quite likely. Um, 
if he was pro-labor or pro-revolutionary, he would have been an unusual merchant. <laughs> uh, as far as revolution being, at this time, influenced by socialism. If revolution was, you know, uh, free press, voting for cities, even voting for women, he might have gone along with it. But the laws that would have kept his workers in check also began to be abolished at this time, the conspiracy and the combination acts. And then in the middle of the decade, uh, if we go up to 1837, so at least uh, one other major was a rethinking and a reconfiguration of the poor law system. And... Mm. I don't mean to be self-centered, but for those of us who study modern society, uh, definitions and relations between rich and poor, uh, and certainly for an old-fashioned guy like me, are among the most central. So, you know, this defined who is poor, why they would be poor, what could be done with them. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read uh, Dickens' novels. They yeah. always include the poor. They often include people who uh, are living in workhouses. There's usually an inspector or a governor. And those are all the results of what is called the new poor law legislation. Uh, as we proceed a little past 1837, there are going to be a lot of other ones, but I gather that if he, got, has he left, if he's left England by then, mm -hmm. um, the important ones would be the debate about transportation, mm -hmm. whether, for example, yeah. England will continue to legally send it. And then there are uh, measures in the colonial office about property ownership uh, free labor to Australia, et cetera. So I think, I'm not sure how long he stayed in Australia, but, uh, there would, that would have been of some interest, certainly. Um, if you went to the island you mentioned and started his own society, I doubt parliament would have even known where it was. I mean, for most, <laughs> for most parliamentarians, Australia, that was the appeal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Australia was over the edge. Um, most people really didn't pay attention to India until the Great Rebellion. Right. Uh, it was said that once uh, Burke stood up in Parliament near the beginning of your character's life, and as soon as Burke started talking to India, everybody went to the pubs and the coffee shops, and they would just read his speeches later. So mm. um, it really is, I would say, that uh, there was interest in the continent. So mm. one of the things that got the reform bills passed were the revolutions of 1830 in Belgium and France. And even the king opted for reform in part to avoid a revolution. Hmm. So the king in 1830 threatened to pack the House of Lords to push through reform. Uh, so the connection wow. is what happened in the continent was extremely important. Um, what happened in the British Isles, particularly Ireland, remained crucial. But for most Victorians, the rest of the world was an oddity. It was exotic. You know, they might consume something from them. Right. Uh, so that's certainly a good part of of the 1830s. I think all historians would also say the other part is England is on the edge of becoming the first industrial society. Mm. So by the 1840s, it is the first industrial society. And by the 1830s, you already have tremendous number of factories. You have uh, workers organizing. You have um, the economic problems of over overproduction and depression. Uh, mm -hmm. A city like Manchester could hire four four hundred thousand cotton workers during the eighteen thirties and eighteen forties, but next week four hundred thousand could be out of work because of a trade depression. Wow. So I think the political reform and the um, industrialization 
would probably be the two big issues that would have captivated people. The various other ones I could talk about, but you know, if you wanted to go sort of the big hits and yeah. you open the London Times or the Illustrated London News, where you talked about things, I mean, there always is corruption. There's always some kind of scandal. Those, you know, yeah. and sports yeah. and sports were big. I mean, boxing and horse racing, but for serious conversation, industrialization and reform. Wow. So I, I have so many questions for you. Sure, <laughs> I'm going to keep you all Go day. Um, no, please. You know, it sounds like such an important period. And I'm sure that um, those who are not familiar with this section of British history, are probably mm-hmm. a little shocked at how important it was just in those six years. I mean, um, uh, to start off with uh, at the beginning uh, with the, the kind of Catholic reforms mm-hmm. was that so uh, by this point in the book um our listeners have already met the duke of wellington and um was were those changes kind of put in place because of him or in spite of him or how did they over his dead over his dead body oh interesting okay the, the reason he's called old ironsides has nothing to do with the war he's called old ironsides because his home was pelted with mm. sticks and rocks and excrement Oh, he wow. was the interesting. He was the embodiment of reaction. So if you think about a political mm. spectrum, yeah. uh, reaction is exactly the opposite of revolution. He wasn't conservative. He literally wanted to turn the clock back. Um, these were certainly over his almost dead body, absolutely. And when wow. he leaves office, uh, he leaves office, I would say the popularity of Waterloo exists to this day, you know, in sure. his yeah. Uh, although his rear end was saved by Blucher and the Prussians very much. <laughs> uh, it was also right. saved one of the very few tactical errors that Napoleon would make. Uh, mm-hmm. But regardless of that, he's a national hero. Uh, also for the Peninsular War. Uh, and, and for yeah. those that are uh, not familiar, this is Battle of Waterloo 1815. So this is right. 15 years ahead of the time period we're, right. we're talking um, about. Exactly. Yeah. And But yeah. he still is able to you know, generate some goodwill but sure. that begins to shift because I, I would say, even though it's a generality, um, most people other than reactionaries went along with the reforms. Now, they may not have loved them, all right? Uh, but right. there's an old adage by Edmund Burke called, we reform to preserve. Reaction leads to things mm-hmm. falling apart. Mm-hmm. What I think the listeners and myself as a historian are interested in is, and that's reform to preserve through Parliament, <laughs> right? Right. So, right. Uh, but that only works if Parliament opens up. So mm-hmm. one of the great debates, of course, sorry about the phone. I apologize. One of the great debates, of course, is what we would call democratization, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a part, if you have a part of Parliament in when your character begins, that's only in the countryside and only landowners, right? They're not going to be sympathetic to factory issues. They're not going to be sympathetic to urban issues. Uh, so conservatives and liberals promoted reform, but the idea that that would keep things falling apart. And falling apart is not uh, some existentialist dilemma. The revolutions in 1830, right. many still remember the French Revolution. And by 1848, almost all of Europe will be in a revolution. Mm-hmm. So this, this is not um, what today we might call uh, gaslighting. It's right. not. <laughs> Uh, and certainly there were revolutionaries in England as well. So 
So they were kind of uh, pushed into these reforms even, you know, would that have happened if the, these external factors had not been there? Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, please interrupt me. <laughs> um, I think uh, probably most of them would have occurred at some point. Uh, it was not tenable really for parliament to only be an old landlord's home. That was mm. increasingly untenable. Um, I mean, it made sense when England wasn't particularly urbanized. It made sense when the economy really ran through the countryside. But that was less and less the case. And, a, and many aristocrats, unlike the Marxist uh, model, uh, became merchants, became businessmen, became mm. capitalists. Okay. Now, if they had remained highly reactionary like in Russia, yeah, there may have been more of a, a problem. Um, slavery uh, was a very fraught issue because the slave owners uh, wielded a tremendous amount of power, tremendous, not just in the slave islands, but also back home. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably eventually that would have occurred, but historians tend to ask, you know, why, when, not eventually, right? So right. we tend to look, and, and I think most historians agree that 1833, the abolition of slavery, was clearly influenced by opening up parliament. I mean, more and more merchants were against slavery, not necessarily for religious or moral reasons, but slavery was a protected industry, right? The slave owners didn't play by the fair games, right? right. They, they didn't have wage slave, wage laborers. They didn't have to negotiate a market. There were supports for their goods. So one way to look at it is, you know, Adam Smith coming back and biting them in the rear end, that all those years after Wealth of Nations, Right. We would become more and more of a free trade economy. Okay. I apologize. Sorry about that. I hope that did the ding go in the recording? I hope. No, no, you're all good. Oh, good, good. Okay. <laughs> you're all good. So um, I guess, I guess uh, the yeah. answer would be, yeah. um, and I agree with you, it is a very exciting and tumultuous time, like mm -hmm. everybody says about every period. Uh, but but <laughs> sure. interesting that for historians who often argue, it's a fun parlor game for British historians. Uh, why was there no revolution? Right. Mm. Uh, France, Interesting. China, yeah. Iran, Russia. England had one in the 17th century. But the other right. argument is that they were the closest to revolution in the 1830s and 1830s, 1820s and 1830s. The times oh, after the Napoleonic Wars, well, the economic times after the Napoleonic Wars were horrible. Uh, mm. U.S. hasn't ever had this experience of being in total war for 25 years. And when war ends, prices are depressed, unemployment goes up, trade never recovers completely. So a bushel of a wheat or a bushel of food might have ca uh, caused a laborer three to four weeks of wages. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Huge. Wow. wow. Yes. And great uh, swaths of unemployment. Uh, along with uh, some very radical ideas. Some of them were English, some of them imported. So uh, it's a parlor game and it's a fun one. And I personally like to play it. You know, <laughs> what, happened in, what happened in the 1820s and 1830s that there wasn't a revolution. And certainly reform is one answer. That's definitely one answer. Uh, it's the first police force. We call them Bobbies because it's Robert Peel. I mean, Britain doesn't have a police force until the 1830s. Wow, which is really which is a joke on the continent. Everybody has one on the continent uh, <laughs> long before then. Yeah. Um, 
and there's no large standing army. So in Europe, uh, in and I don't I don't mean to use the term loosely, but uh, classic authoritarian regime is when the police and army basically do the same thing, right? Like the army, that's the reason the U.S., we have those laws. The National Guard might do something like the police does, but the army is not allowed to. Okay, right. in old regimes, right. they all do it all. But England, it was, didn't have yeah. that. England didn't have that either. Hmm. So England was not prepared wow. for revolution by any means at all. So it's an interesting game to play, but certainly your, your uh, merchant uh, could have overheard radical ideas. He could easily have read them in newspapers. Uh, public speaking was very popular. Uh, ma- major in 1819, there was the most popular speaker, uh, ended up being what's known as the Peterloo Massacre in Manchester, where since there were no police, middle-class people like your character mm-hmm. merchants were deputized. You can think about the old Western, right? Wow. Where you, yeah. give a, you give a star to somebody who really shouldn't have a star and suddenly <laughs> they have a gun. Well, that's yeah. what happened. Merchant yeoman charged into peaceful protesters and instead of calling it a, uh, just the Manchester and the Fields Massacre, they had a pun on Waterloo and they called it the Peterloo Massacre. Uh, hmm. So these, these were pretty tumultuous times. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this first part of the uh, conversation I had with Professor Hoffenberg, uh, such a such a great guy, and uh, such interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, I'm sure when I when I started diving into this uh, period of history, I'm sure like many of you, I didn't realize how important it was uh, to the history of uh, the world and history of Britain. Uh, really fascinating stuff, and we're going to be um, bringing you more segments from this uh, long interview with uh, Professor Hoffenberg in uh, in future weeks, and uh, it kind of intermixed with the story as we have been uh, presenting to you uh, in the, in past weeks. But um, anyway, hope everybody's uh, really enjoying uh, Taken by the Sea. And uh, please please send us your thoughts and, of course, tell your friends about it. Uh, you can send us your comments and your, your thoughts through our social media handles. But if you're enjoying it, uh, please tell your friends. We're always looking for more listeners uh, who will enjoy the story. So thank you again for joining us tonight. And uh, we'll be back uh, next, next time with uh, more of the story and more discussion about Taken by the Sea. Uh, until then, good night and thank you again. <laughs>